This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Welcome, everybody. Welcome, all our Torah Anytime uh, viewers, subscribers. Tonight we are learning Le'ilu Nishmat Rabbi Avram Ben Chaim Yehuda and Rabbi Cheskel Ben Rabbi Avram, as well as Rufuashlema to Chababat Chaya Esther. So tonight we're going to continue with the current uh, current events uh, which we have been speaking about for the past uh, almost month. And uh, the idea behind speaking on the current events is not just to present news. And this is something that we've been doing for the past uh, three, four classes, and that is to take out lessons. There is lessons that we can learn to improve ourselves in our day-to-day lives. And these are things that, that we – when things happen around the world, we can't just – you know, like read the news and just skip over. There has to be some sort of change within us, even if it's small, but it has to be, has to be something. So that's why every news, every class that we speak about the news, we speak about current events, we do try to take out some lessons. And Bezat Hashem with Hashem's help, the goal is for tonight to take out five, uh, you know, five lessons, uh, to learn from it. So there's something that, we may have spoken about before. Um, I, I, I've spoken about it before. I don't know if I spoke about it on recording or not. But in any case, it's an important fact to speak about before we get to the facts, before we get to the news uh, that we want to discuss of the current events. And that is when you look at the story of Avramavinu. When you look at how the, story, the Torah begins with the story of Avramavinu, the Torah begins when Avramavinu was 75 years old. What happened? The first 75 years. Like there has to be a lot of amazing information in there. And in fact, we do know a lot of amazing information. And that is from the Midrashim. We see with the, the, one of the most famous stories where Avram Avinu was thrown into a fire and walked out of it. He would, like the, the whole story behind it was when he was with his father's idols. Um, his father used to have an idol store and he was, uh, it took over the, the store for one day as a salesman. And he told everybody like, why are you buying this idol? This idol is made out of stone. This this idol is made out of wood. Serve one God. Serve a Kaddish Baruch So obviously he didn't get much sales. The news went back to uh, the ruler at the time, Nimrod, and he ended up being, long story short, he ended up being thrown into the fire. Now, he was miraculously saved from the fire. This is a, a, a like a famous story, an amazing story. Like, why wouldn't the Torah put this story in the, the written Torah? We know it's in the oral law, but why isn't it in the written law? And the reason why the Torah doesn't mention it explains the Ramban that because the general population denied it. The general population did not, when I say deny, that means that they thought that it was not a miraculous event. They thought that, you know, it was magical. It was a magical event. And if it was a magical event and not a divine event, then it was not a reason for the, there was not a reason for the Torah to go and to uh, write it down. Explains the Ramban, Ramban why. The we see by the time of Yitzhak Mitzrayim, the time of the Exodus of Egypt, Moshe Rabbeinu and Aaron Akon were were you know going back and forth with the Egyptian Pharaoh and the Egyptian magicians, and they kept on showing them signs that this is God and that God wants to take the Jewish people out. But you know what the Egyptian magician said? No, they're just magicians. They're just good magicians. Until it came a point where the magicians realized that this is not magic anymore. This is the hand of God. This is the finger of God. And the magician came, the Egyptian magicians came to understanding and realized that this is not something that's magical. This is something that's divine. The way that the Torah works is that the Torah always presents both sides of the story. There is the story of the magicians, and then there is the story of, of uh, Moshe and, and Aaron. There is a story of the divine and the story of the magical. The Torah presents both information and then comes to the conclusion that even the magicians realized that it was divine, it was minashamayim, it was from Hashem, and it was not, it was not magic. The difference between Moshe Rabbeinu and the magicians and Aaron and the people, and Avram Avinu, I'm sorry, and his, and, and his time when he got out of the fire is during the time of Avram Avinu, they were not, they all thought and they always thought it was magical. They were never proven that it was minashamayim, that it was divine. By Moshe Rabbeinu's time, they were proven, they knew for a fact, they came to, they, they testified that this is from HaKadosh Baruch Hu. By the time, but in the time of, of Avram Avinu, they didn't, they didn't come, it was a stalemate, it wasn't a time, it wasn't a, 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 a time where they realized, oh like, Avram Avinu was saved because he believed in one God, and HaKadosh Baruch Hu saved it for them. So, 
the Torah explains the Ramban did not mention both sides because there was no conclusion to the both sides. Each side thought of something else, so therefore the Torah didn't mention it. And the question you could still ask, but isn't there amazing lessons that you can learn from it? And the answer is yes, you could learn tremendous amount of lessons, and we do learn tremendous amount of lessons from it from the uh, from the midrashim that speak about this story. But there is a bigger lesson that the Torah wanted to teach us in Sefer Bereshis, and that is the Sefer Bereshis is known as Sefer Hayashar. Sefer Hayashar means the straight, the, the you know, the the, uh, the straight Sefer, being very straight and very honest. If the Torah would not be able to put both sides of the story, the Torah does not put the story at all. The Torah puts stories inside there when only there's both sides. Why? Because the Torah is straight and the Torah is honest. Everything has to be straight and everything has to be honest. Most people, whenever or every person almost, view things with a certain bias. We have a certain bias that we view things. And you look at it, you know, like even though the news, the media, the uh, reporters, they have uh, their 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 job is to report it unbiased. But we all know that the left reports left and the right reports right. And everybody in the in between reports how they wish. Everybody looks at the situation in a very biased way. The Torah did not present its information in a, in a biased way. The Torah presented its information in a straight way. And we see this is something very different from the Torah than from, uh, from Judaism than all other religions. All other religions only present things that makes themselves look good. The Muhammad, the JC, they all present information, not that they were bad people, but they were amazing people. There was no negative aspects in them. In the Torah, there is negative aspects in the, about the leaders, about Moses, Rabbi know about there's so many pe- places that the Torah speaks of that the the leaders sinned and the Jewish people sinned and the Jewish people did something bad in all other religions you don't have that you don't have where the 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 prophets did something wrong because why if somebody would make up a book would make up a religion why would they say something negative about their prophets why would they say something this is one of the proofs that we could see that the Torah is a divine book and it's not like any every other religion that's made up that says oh yeah you know what there's no wrong that this person ever did no we're human and there is wrong done the Torah is very honest and very straight and the same thing is over here in this story. Because both sides it didn't, you weren't able, the Torah wasn't able to go and present both information because they didn't come to a conclusion. So hence the Torah did not mention the story at all, as opposed to by Moshe and Aaron, there was both sides, both sides were mentioned, and then they came to the conclusion where everybody realized that it was Minashamayim, was from God, and it was not that, uh, it was, it wasn't something from magic. This is the idea by knowing the honest truth, knowing the honest facts. And this is the first lesson out of the five lessons, Bezalat Hashem, that we'll hopefully be able to go on and, and get through to, you know, tonight. And the first lesson is you have to be yasher. You have to be straight. You have to be honest. This is something that you have to be honest. And that's why we have to look at all the facts. There's a lot of things that are floating out around in the, in the media, in the world, in the politics. Uh, and, and there are things that are floating around that are not factual. So let's go through these things and let's see what we can uncover. The first thing that I would like to speak about is a terminology called the occupation. Occupation by definition means that you don't belong. It's a negative terminology. Occupation means that you don't belong over there. Occupy territory means that territory does not belong to you. And it's in the media, in some media, it's used in, in Israel that this is occupied territory, meaning that it's occupied by Israel, but it doesn't belong to Israel. It belongs to whatever, Palestinians or Arabs or whatever it is that you want to uh, uh, you know acknowledge. So let's look at historical data. Of course, we could all look into the Torah, and the Torah says in many places, and the Torah, just FYI, is for, for Christians and for Muslims, is known as the Old Testament. The Old Testament is also true, and they also believe in it. And in the Old Testament, in numerous time, places, it says that the, that Israel belongs to the Jewish people. You look at just some verses, if you want, like to look it up. In uh, Bereshus, in Genesis chapter 12, verse 7, in chapter 13, verse 14 through 17, in chapter 15, verse 5, in chapter 15, verse 18 to 21, and in chapter 17, verse 8, all in Genesis and Bereshit speaks about how the Torah belongs to the Jewish people. And of course, there's many, many, many other places throughout the five other books of, of, of Moses, the five of the, the Chabishai Chum Shetara, and throughout Tanakh, that the Israel belongs to the Jewish people and not to the Arabs, to the Palestinians. But let's go through the historical data, historical historical facts. In um, when, when Israel became a state, 
late in in in, in recent history in 1948 the many uh, arab nations said you know they don't belong here they're really just europeans that came into uh uh you know to 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 our land this is one of the biggest lies of our century this is like one of the biggest lie, lies at the time that the jewish people don't belong there and it was really a palestinian or an arab uh, arab territory if we go back in history, if we go back 3,500 years, almost 4,000 years, when Moshe Rabbeinu led people out of Egypt and into Israel, you're talking about 14, about the year 1400 BCE. You're, you're talking about almost 3,500 years ago. 3,400 years, like, like a tremendous amount of time ago, thousands upon thousands of years that the Jews were in Israel. And of course we know that the Jew, there was a base amygdala, the temple, the first temple and the second temple that was <coughs> built in Israel, in Jerusalem. And it stayed there until the destruction of the second temple. The second temple was destroyed in about the year 70 CE. The year, so right now we're in the year 2023. The, this is in the year, this is not BCE, this is common era, this is the current year, this is the current, uh, uh, um, uh, time frame, and that is the year 70 was when the temple was, the second temple was destroyed. Now the Roman emperor, Hadrian, wanted to remove all Jewish things. The old Jewish things from, from Jerusalem. And he went and he renamed Jerusalem to uh, Aelia Capitolina. And then he went to his historians and he told his historians, he says, who is the worst enemy of the Jews? And the historians went and they said the worst enemy of the Jews. They went and they, heard, they realized that the worst enemy of the Jews were the Plishtim. So Hadrian, Roman Emperor Hadrian, he decided because of his hatred towards uh, towards the Jews, he wanted to declare the land of Israel to be called after the Plishtim, after the Philistine, the Philistines, um, and sort of to dishonor the Jews. So he named he named Israel, he renamed rather Israel after the Plishtim, and it became Palestine to sort of uh, uh, dishonor the Jews who lived in in that land for the next. 2,000 years, since the destruction of the temple. Till today, there was always a Jewish present in the land. There was always Jews living in the land. But let's go through historical, uh, um, you know, through history from the destruction of the temple, from which it was taken away from the Jewish, uh, the Jewish people didn't rule the land after the destruction of the second temple. It was ruled by the Romans. And let's take it to today and to, till, from then till now. So we know the temple was destroyed around the year 70, common era, some, between 68 and 70, depending on the, which, uh, historical facts you're looking at. But in any case, it was destroyed around that time and it was taken over, Israel was taken over, uh, controlled by the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire ruled until the year 313. Then it went over to the Byzantine Empire and they ruled on it till the year 636. The religion of Islam only came into being, it only started at the year 610, meaning during this time, during the Byzantine Empire, this is where Islam started. Islam, st- which means is that Islam started wa- about after roughly 1600 years, after the Jews are already in the land of Israel. Judaism is way, way older than Islam, and they've been practicing in Israel, living in Israel for 1600 years prior to even any creation of the religion of Islam. After the Byzantine Empire, uh, the, by the year 636 to the year 1099, it went actually under Arab rule. And this is where uh, the Dome of the Rock on the Temple Mount was built by Caliph Abid al-Malik. This was built on the year 691 um, by by an Islamic uh, Caliph. The Arab rule was taken over by the Christian or the Crusaders from the year 1099 to the year 1291. And then it was taken over by the Mamluk rule from the year 1291 to the year 1516. During this time is where, uh, and we can see that there is Jewish presence in the land, is where the Ramban, Maimonides, uh, uh, Nachmanides, I'm sorry, was um, moved to to Yerushalayim, and he established a shul known as uh, the uh, the the shul of the Ramban, and it actually exists till today in the old city. And we know also in the year 1492, many Jews were expelled from Spain, um, and uh, they ended up moving to Tzfas, and it became a, a big center for for capitalists there. After the Mamluk rule, it was taken over by the Ottoman rule from the year 1517 to the year 1917, where it was taken over by the British Empire, where it, they held it on from the year 1918 to the year 1948. In the year 1948, we're not going to get into the giving up of the land of Israel for the Jewish people, but the, basically that's when the state of Israel uh, became a state in the year 19, uh, 1948. 
Now, there is a false claim that there was a massive Arab presence that was overrun by invading Jews. And we can see this by, it was it's dispelled by Mark Twain. Mark Twain visited Israel in the year 1867. And he wrote in this book, The Innocence Abroad, that we traveled miles in Israel and we never saw a human being there. The whole route, there wasn't a tree or a shrub. It was a de- It was like a deserted country. It was empty there. It was empty there. There were people obviously living there, but I'm saying it wasn't like it was a full, thriving community, Arab community that Jewish people came in. There were Jews and Arabs living over there. And in fact, the vast majority of Arabs came to Israel after the Zionist pioneers began rebuilding the land. Uh, historically, there was a lot of uh, very, very wealthy people from the Rothschilds to the Montefiore, to, to Mos Montefiore who invested a lot into Israel. And the uh, uh, Arab people nearby saw this as an economic opportunity. So they started moving into uh, Israel as a, uh, well, back then it was Palestine, into uh, for economic, uh, you know, opportunity. They weren't indigenous to the land. They just moved there because of the economic, uh, you know, opportunity. And the... The, the, the Jewish residents, the Arab residents at that time were all known as Palestinians. In fact, Golda Meir, the Israeli prime minister from 1921 to 1948, she had a Palestinian passport. The, the, the Arabs were no more Palestinian than the Jews. The Jerusalem Post, as we know today, used to be called the Palestine Post. The, 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 the facts that we see from here is number one, the Jewish people had been in Israel for well over three and a half thousand years in in the land of Israel. And lesson number two, fact or better yet, fact number two, never in history has there been an Arab-Palestinian state. There was never a Palestinian state that was only for Arabs. There were Jews living there and there was Arabs living there for quite a, you know, a long period of time because this was the Arab area and the Jews, this was their land. The Palestinian movement, the PLO, that began only in May 28, 1964. This is not something that existed for many, many centuries. The Palestinian movement began in May 28, 1964. The purpose of its founding was pretty much to destroy Israel. That was the reason that it was, that it was, uh, uh, you know, founded. The Jews, they wanted to leave peacefully with the, the, the with with the arabs and they offered to uh you know to split to split the land and they wanted to split them they wanted to live peacefully and in fact the jews many times in the years 1937 they offered let's split the land in the year 1947 let's split the land in the year 1967 in the year 2000 in the year 2008 they wanted to split the land and even in the year 2005, Israel withdrew from the Gaza Strip in Gush Katif. They, they, they took people out. Jewish people took out other Jewish people, 8,000 Jews. So what? So that they could be able to have some sort of peace with the, uh, with the Arabs of the Palestinian. And in the early days, the Jews were willing to go and they were willing to t- give to the Arabs 70% of the land to the Arabs just for peace. The Jews would just take 30%. The Arabs refused. They did not want it. They did not want to live in harmony. They did not live in a, want to live in harmony. In the year 2000, it was the, the, the peace that was offered by Israel was not only rejected verbally, but it was also violently rejected. There was a second intifada. There, there was terrorist attacks uh, from the Palestinian Authority there were the, to the Jewish people. They did not want peace. They did not want to live together. They wanted the Jews out. They wanted the whole thing for themselves. They wanted war. They wanted death. And when you look at the wars, most of the wars between Israel and its nations, Israel did not start, if not all of the wars. I don't know one war that Israel started. But the, most of the wars, Israel did not start. It was started from the Arab side. And you know what happened? They started it. They lost. Israel, Baruch Hashem, they won the wars. With Hashem's help, they won the wars. And you know what ended up happening? They ended up taking back more land, Israel, after these wars. And what happened? The Palestinians, they started blaming the losses on Israel. They never take responsibility for the action. The war of 1948, the war of the Six Day War in, in 1967, the Yom Kippur War in 1973. They started fighting. The other na- the other Arab nations around joined in. The Jews won. They took more land. And then guess what happened? They started blaming the Jews for winning. Like why? You know, like oh, occupation. This is you know, like they won the war. It's like imagine Germany in World War II starts blaming America for winning the war. Like uh, like you, why did you do this? Like why? Like what do you mean you're? At war and that's the point to win 
The point is the way. Like the Palestinians, they're, they're, they try to get something they lost. They blame the people that they lost from. Sore losers, crybabies. I don't know what you want to call them. You look at what the the Palestinians want. What Hamas? Let's look at what Hamas wants. The leader of Hamas had an interview that they were very proud about what they did. They would, and in fact, they want to do it again and again and again. This is not something that they're like, oh, you know, it was a mistake. It was a it, it was a select few that that went rogue. Like, no, no, no. They're very proud of what they did. They would say this is going to happen again and again and again and again, and we're going to keep on doing it. This is what they were telling your reporter until we free the occupation. So the reporter was like, oh, you mean free Gaza? They were like, no, 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 free Israel. Like, free Israel from what? From, from like the Jews, they're like, yeah, free Israel until there's no more Jews. Basically, they want to get rid of the Jews. That's what's in their charter. They want to death to all the Jews and remove all the Jews. That's what, that's what Hamas wants. That's what the Palestinians want. Today came out, uh, um, a report from the New York Times, um, that the primary goal they said, the Hamas leader said, in the primary goal of, of October 7, you know, massacre, terrorist attack, that was to start a war with Israel. They wanted to start a war. They intended a, a lot of other, you know, people to join the war, uh, Lebanon, Iran. They wanted everybody to join the war. It's not happening as of now. But they wanted a war on all fronts of Israel to try to destroy Israel. This is the this is the people that Israel is fighting with. The, the idea that people are screaming ceasefire is idiotic or ignorance like if you have any understanding of the history of palestine and israel the history of gaza and israel a ceasefire only means that you're going to delay the inevitable a ceasefire means that okay let hamas reload let hamas recoup and then we'll start again in another few years i don't know if you have learned anything from the past you know 15 years of what was going on in gaza the the, the ceasefire is only time for them to to build up and fight again the People that claim to to say ceasefire now, thinking that that's going to bring peace, you, you can. When people that are saying ceasefire, ceasefire will only produce more bloodshed. The inevitable is that Israel has to destroy Hamas. Israel has to. It has to eradicate them from the the like a mullet, remove them from the world. By delaying it, is just going to cause more innocent civilian deaths. That's what's going to happen. So for all those. Peace-loving people that say ceasefire now, ceasefire now. All you're doing is causing more deaths, and all you're doing is showing your ignorance. How it makes no sense to know what you, you don't know anything about what you're talking about. Because ceasefire is only going to delay. It's only going to cause longer war, and a longer war means more death. But yet, why do people scream ceasefire? Because they only look at the underdog. Something unfortunately, the the Western media has taught people to always look at the underdog. And you know, people look. You know, who's losing the war? Hamas is losing the war. So you know, you gotta you gotta fight for for the for the underdog, even though they're terrorists, even though they destroy and they and they kill and they murder innocent people. Uh, why? You know, people don't don't use their brains. When you look at it really from a factual perspective, it. it, it it's very clear. There is not a area where it's like, oh, okay, I'm not sure which way to look. Both sides could be right. On one side, Israel, they want peace. They want, they were willing and they have and to give land to the Arabs, to the Palestinians. They don't want violence. They don't want deaths. Not on the Israeli side and not on the Palestinian side. Not on the Gaza side and not on the Israeli side. They don't want any deaths. That's one side. Peace, harmony, tranquility. That's all they want. The second side, the Palestinian side, or the Gaza side of this perspective from Hamas side, you know what they want? They want war. They say they want war. They want to get rid of every single Jew, not from Gaza, because there's no Jews living in Gaza. They want to get rid of every Jew from Israel. They want death to all the Jews, and they don't care if that happens with the death of their own. So they don't care about death of their own. They don't care about death of the Jews. They don't, they just, don't want, they want war. That's what they want. So you have one side that wants peace and one side that wants war. Why isn't everybody on the side of peace? Why isn't everybody on the side of tranquility? And that brings us to the conclusion of fact number one. And fact number one is that we see that it's very, very clear. There is no occupation. Israel belongs to the Jews. It belonged to the Jews. And right now, it rightfully belongs to the Jews. There is no occupation means that it doesn't belong to them. It very, very clearly belongs to the Jewish people. And the Palestinians were welcome to go and to the, and, you know, into the land. They lived there. There's 20% of Arab Palestinian, Arab people living in Israel. <clears throat> it's the other side that doesn't want Israel at all. They don't want Jews or Israel at all. So number one, fact number one, the word occupation is a factually incorrect word. 
It's a trigger word. It's a word that means that they don't belong. And that's factually incorrect. It's a word that means that it's not their home. And that again, that's factually incorrect. Historically incorrect. Moving on to fact number two. The apartheid. So you have one of the most highly... uh, or, or, or the greatest accusations that people give to Israel is they call it an apartheid state. Uh, w- w- generally what it means is that apartheid comes from the, from, from South Africa. South Africa, there was, se- uh, was racial segregation in the pre-1990s in South Africa that denied certain, uh, racial groups, which was the blacks in South Africa, access to political and judicial, uh, system. They couldn't live in the same neighborhoods uh, as white citizens. They didn't have the same educational, uh, you know, opportunities. Racial segregation. And this was known as the apartheid. And the world, or some people, are trying to utilize apartheid to Israel. So let's look at Israel, if it really is an apartheid, if it really is an apartheid state. Arabs citizens in Israel, which are 20% of the population in Israel, not talking about West Bank, I'm not talking about Gaza, I'm talking about Israel proper, 20% of the citizens are Arabs. They have the same rights as the Jewish Israelis. They have the right to form political parties. They have the right to, the, to, to stand for election. They have the rights to serve as members of the Knesset, the judiciary, the diplomatic corps, the police. They have full rights just like everyone else. Israeli Arab citizens serves as judges, ambassadors, legislators, journalists, professors, and artists and from everything and everywhere in between. But there is a difference. There is a difference between Arab Israelis and Arab in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. And the difference is, is that the Arabs residing in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip are not, they're not now, and they have never been Israeli citizens. They are not Israeli citizens. They are under the Palestinian Authority or the Hamas. If you're not an Israeli citizen, you cannot claim the same rights as an Israeli citizen. It's very, if America doesn't give the same rights to citizens versus non-citizens. And, and, and Professor Eugene Kutrovich brings this down further. This is an article that he published in, uh, that was published in the Wall Street Journal that there is an apartheid in the Holy Land, but not in Israel. And he explains that Israel is a country where Arabs participate in all forms of public life. They hold positions in the government. They mingle in cafes and buses and public places. The place where there is an apartheid is in the Palestinian Authority. That's where real apartheid is practiced. The PA has a law that calls for the death penalty if a Palestinian sell a land to a Jew. Let me repeat that in case you didn't hear that. The PA has a law that calls for the death penalty if a Palestinian sells a land to a Jew. That's besides the controversial, uh, crazy controversial, you know, government policy that the Palestinian Authority has is that they pay. It's called pay to slay. If you they they reward terrorists. We spoke about this before. If you go and you commit a terrorist act by killing an innocent civilian child, woman, man, doesn't matter. You get paid for that. They pay the government pays you for that. So. Kutcherovich comes to the conclusion, says throughout all its laws and policies, what happened is that the Palestinian Authority had created a Jew-free zone. There are no Jews over there. The areas controlled by the Palestinian Authority is not that there's no separation of Jews and Arabs because there's no Jews there. You know how many Jews live in Palestinian Authority? You know how many Jews live in Gaza? Zero. How many, how many Arabs live in Israel? 20%, about 1.7 million Arabs live in Israel. 20% of the population is Arab is an Arab-Israeli citizen. Calling Israel an apartheid is ignorant, is not knowing anything about anything about the, about, about the politics over there because the Arabs there, as if the Arab citizens and Israeli citizens have the same rights. And you can't expect someone who's not a citizen to have the same right as a citizen. That's nowhere in the world does that policy hold up. There's no every country in the world treats its citizens very differently than its non-citizens. It's it, it, that's just a common way to have government policies. So then you can say, well, there's a wall, there is a blockade. So <clears throat> if you look through just a little bit of history, the West Bank, the Gaza, the Gaza Strip engaged in ongoing armed battle with Israel. And this is a national security. When you have people coming to kill you, coming to blow you up, that is a national security. And you know how Israel functions in a national, in the area of national security? They're governed by terms of the, the, it's the, called the law of armed conflict. 
It's an international law. And this is, their, Israel's action is based on well-recognized national security needs, not racial animosity. It's not racial segregation. It's not, has to do anything with, with being an Arab or Palestinian. This is just national security. That's where they're putting it. And people confuse the idea of cause and effect. The reason why, people think, the reason why there's so much resentment and hatred from the Palestinian side is because there's a wall, there's a blockade, there's a separation. What they don't realize, there was no separation before they started bombing and they started killing innocent civilians. The results of the bombing happened and Israel said, okay, let's stop letting terrorists come in. So they put up a wall over there. Before, Palestinians would be coming in in the hundreds of thousands to work in Israel. Israel paid better. Israel had better run government, better wages. It just everything was done better. What the Palestinians were, were they, they were coming in, and it was coming in both ways. The, the, the Jews were going into the Palestinian side. The Palestinians were going to the, Jew, to the Israeli side. It was going back and forth. And only once the, the, the terror started, only once the, the killing started, that's when Israel started saying, hey, we have to protect our citizens and we have to put up a wall. You know, the, the blockade of Gaza was not the cause of Hamas terrorism. It was the effect of Hamas terrorism. The blockade, the, the blockade, the fence in West, in, in, in West, in West, the, 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 the idea of the West Bank being separate was because of the terrorism that happened. It wasn't that people were separated and that's what caused the terrorism. The terrorism is what caused the separation. They were like, okay, we gotta stop people from killing innocent people. This is national security. It's only normal. It's only common knowledge that if someone's trying to kill you, be like, okay, I'm not gonna let you kill me. That's literally what the blockade was. People were coming in and their government were pushing, sponsoring this, saying to go and kill the intifada, would go and go go and destroy. So again, the blockade in Gaza was not the cause of Hamas terrorism; it was the effect of Hamas terrorism. The Israeli security fence around the West Bank was not what caused terrorism; it was a response to terrorism. Before that, again, the border was wide open. People, Israelis would go to, to, to the West Bank for medical care, for dental care, because it was cheaper. You know, like, they would go back and forth to restaurants and things like that. It was, it was not only, the blockade only happened to protect their citizens. And this is the, the idiocracy, the, the stupidity, the, 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 the lack of knowledge, the ignorance that the world has. You look at Black Lives Matter, which, you know, like, is worth nothing. Uh, but what they said, and they quoted, Regarding this attack, when, when a people have been subjected to decades of apartheid, again, factually incorrect, their resistance must not be condemned. Resistance? Resistance to what? Like, are they upset that Israel stopped letting them kill Jewish people? Are they upset that Israel stopped letting them kill Israeli citizens, Jews and Arabs? Like, what's the, re- the resistance was like, stop killing us, we have to protect ourselves, so we're gonna block ourselves in. A blockade can go both ways. You know, there's a blockade from the Egyptian side as also. You never see anything about that. You know, you never hear anything about that. You like, what, what is Israel supposed to do? Just like, let them come in and be like, yeah, why don't you come and kill everybody? <laughs> what's the world gonna say? And then you could say, okay, fine, you know, the Palestinian Authority, look at what they live in. People always vote for the underdog, always look at the underdog. They live in poorer, poorer places. Uh, they don't have the, the, the financial, you know, uh, uh, the economic stability that Israel has. They don't have the educational system that Israel has. You know who you need to look for that? Look at your own government. Why is the Palestinian Authority spending millions of dollars paying for terrorism instead of going and building the economy? Why are they putting money towards terroristic acts instead of going and fighting and war and killing? Maybe build up your own economy. And there's so so much poverty in Gaza. The amount of money that went into Gaza, they could have made it into a Times Square. There was so much money that went into Gaza. And you can see this by the the leaders of Gaza are all billionaires. Where did they get the money from? They pocketed all the money that comes in. This is the leaders that they chose. Like, yeah, everybody lives in poverty. Whose fault is that? Whose fault that there's no employment opportunity in the government, in the place that you're standing in? Are you blaming the, 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 you know, the, the nearby government that put a blockade to prevent you from killing them? Or maybe 
instead of digging tunnels, instead of putting all your money to rockets, give your people some economic stability. Give your people some 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 sort of some, some sort of normalcy of a government of doing what you need to do. But you know what the, the Hamas says? It's not our responsibility to take care of our people. Which government would say it's not our responsibility? They say, yeah, it's United Nations responsibility. Look at the audacity, the chutzpah. And the people are like, yeah, I guess it is. Imagine America says, no, it's not our responsibility to take care of our people. Let Spain take care of it. What? <laughs> Why? Like, what does one thing have to do with another? So we see over here, the terminology, occupation, the terminology, apartheid, open-air prison, this is a complete misrepresentation of the facts. There's a tremendous amount of ignorance around in the world. Especially in geopolitical matters. And especially when it comes to the Palestinian-Israel conflict. I've been searching and I've been looking at many, uh, 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 many data on, on like from, from educational perspectives, meaning from, from colleges. They do not present this matter factually. They present it based on their own bias needs. When it comes to Jews, things just change, right? It's not anymore about facts for whatever reason. And you see over the, you see, you, you really see, you see it all over. There was a, a video that was going around where you see a person that walked over to, uh, a bunch of random people and said, you know, I'm, I have a petition. Can you sign my petition? It's to support Hamas freeing Palestine. And you could see, I think it was in New York, you could see the amount of the eagerness. They're like, yeah, of course I would sign that. They jump on it. And, the, the the person says, you know, like, can I read you the terms and conditions before you sign? And they're like, yeah, of course, of course, I need to know the terms and condition. So he starts reading it over to these people. Says every, uh, you know, if you support Hamas freeing Palestine, you you support every Jew, Christian, and non-Muslim to be slaughtered. And they're like, whoa, you know, like I don't support that. I'm like, well, you just you, you supported you just supported Hamas freeing Palestine. This is what they stand for. You know, like, and he goes to the next person, you know, that if you're, you support this, right? You support Hamas freeing Palestine? Yeah, of course. Oh, so that means you support Sharia law, which means it bans women from dressing a certain way. Uh, you know, no, uh, I don't really support that. You know, like, uh, you know, like what? You don't support that a woman is not allowed to travel without her man's permission? Be like, no, equal opportunity. What do you mean? I don't support that. Fact after fact. So what are they supporting? When people go and they say pro-Palestine, pro-Palestine, do they even know anything? Like, just like a little, like, uh, I don't know, 5% of the information? Do you know? Like, the, the, the joke of the matter is, is that there was a pro-Palestinian rally, and someone came in with a pride flag. You know how long, you know how long that flag lasted? It, it, did, it didn't last five minutes. For <laughs> It was torn apart. Like, you have these lefty people marching together with the pro-Palestinian people as if they're for the same cause, like they couldn't be the furthest apart. They couldn't be the furthest. There's no equal woman's right in Sharia law. There's no equal opportunity. You Before you could explain to the Muslim your pronouns, you'll be thrown off the bridge. You'll be known as a pronoun of was, were. In the past tense, there's no like the idiocracy, the stupidity of the left going with the like like there is nothing in common. There is literally nothing in common that you support. There's nothing. That's how ignorant people are. That's how ignorant people are. And if you think about, you know, like like this is the way the world works. They know nothing and they comment about everything. And I see that in, in my own share. I'll give a share. Someone listens and they tell me I listen to the first five minutes and I don't agree with X, Y, and Z. Wait a minute. You have to listen to the whole thing. Like there's a point. There's a, there's a beginning. There's an intro. There's a middle. There's a conclusion. You have to go through the whole thing in order to be able to make a comment on it. But how do people go? People don't listen to anything. They make a comment on everything. This is how people are. People don't know anything. And those are the people that speak the speak up the most. You look at the population. The population numbers. You know how many Muslims are in America? There's about 3.4 million Muslims in America. You know how many Jews are in America? There's about 6.5 million Jews. Again, you know, are they really Jewish? Halakhically, probably many of them are not. But nonetheless, these are the numbers. The people that identify as Jews. 6.5, meaning that there's almost twice as many Jews as Muslims in America. You know how many pro-Palestinian rallies there were? Way more than there were for the pro-Israel. So wait a minute. Who are all these people supporting pro-Palestinian causes? It's not Muslims. You would think it would be, okay, obviously the Muslims, that's who they support. No. It's the ignorant American people, either either the ignorant or the anti-Semitic American people. 
if they would know a fraction of the factual facts of what's really happening and what they represent, they would never support it. Well, maybe, unless they're anti-Semitic. But if they're ignorant, they would never support it. But they're ignorant. And that leads us to lesson number two. Lesson number two is that we see that most of the people that are pro-Palestinian, from this person who did this uh, uh, interesting, uh, um, you know, uh, report, I guess, of, of going around and asking people if they support Hamas and they really realize that they really don't, it's just ignorance. They have no idea what they support. But it's really when the lesson that we have to take for ourselves is that are we any better? Uh, like, you know, okay, so we're not ignorant maybe in this matter, but are we ignorant in other matters? There's many areas in our own lives where we're ignorant. It could be in our relationships with our spouse, what our spouse wants and needs are, and our children, in our service of Hashem, the halacha, hashkafa. How many, how, how much ignorance do we have? Just like we say that, oh no, you have to stop and think. You're ignorant. You don't know what you're talking about in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So too we need to stop and think how many things that we're ignorant in. And I guarantee you, if you stop for five minutes just to think about what you're ignorant are, again, you could be opening a Pandora's box, but you could find so many things that you're ignorant on and then be like, wait a minute, you know, like if I'm ignorant, maybe I should do something about that. Just like we want other people to like stop their ignorance and, and learn the facts, we have to also look into our own lives and say, what do we have to do that we're ignorant in that we have to fix? We know that the media has a tremendous amount of effect. And we see that this uh, really is in this ignorance as well. Uh, you know, TV, movies, social media, news coverage, uh, you know, they're able to, the media was able to somehow take the worst terrorist attack. This terrorist attack, you know, like it, what they did, they didn't just murder people. They did so, it's, imagine if 9-11 happened and they the, the, they did, the, the Al-Qaeda did what Hamas to Americans, what Hamas did to Israel. Like, not just the murder. The murder is very, very bad. Don't get me wrong. But they did a lot more than just murder. And I'm going to leave it to all whoever knows what, what, what went on. You know what would happen if Hamas would have done that to America? Gaza would not exist. Like, Gaza would be, you know, like, completely gone. Like, there was, are you kidding me? Like, do you know? But somehow the media was able to spin it, some media at least, was able to spin it, that these Miltons, these, these, uh, you know, people from Hamas, they're the good guys. They're the good guys. History made it very, very clear who's the good guys and who's not. Just look at that. Peace is probably the, from the good guys. Israel wanted peace. Palestinians did not want the peace. These leaders will never agree to peace. Yasser Arafat never would agree to peace. You know, Abbas would never agree. Hamas would never. No one would agree to, to, you know, for peace of these leaders, at least. So, for all those pro-Palestinian protesters who just want everything to be right in the world, the, the you know, like end the world hunger and peace, if you want peace, you are on the wrong side. You are on the really, really wrong side. The, you know, the, the, the stupidity that, that goes on. The, there were two New York Times um, writers that they blamed Israel for Ham- the Hamas's October 7 massacre, the, the, the terrorist attack, they blamed Israel. And, and, and one of our, this is a quote, that Israel caused the barbaric terrorist attacks against itself and commits genocide against the Palestinian people. These are New York Times writers. These are reporters who are supposed to report unbiasedly. They're saying that Israel caused g- genocide? Genocide against the Palestinian people? How? By protecting themselves? If someone comes to kill you and you retaliate and you take away the threat, that's genocide? That because they use human shields, that's genocide? Whose fault is that? Like how can you come so far from the – the facts are that the, the only person that's committing genocidal acts is Hamas. The only person who wants genocidal intents is Hamas. And how do people – these are – Reporters, writers, how do they come to that conclusion? And this is the power of the media. And I'd like to share with you something from Rabbi Fran, who quotes in this week's parsha in Bereshit chapter twenty-three, verse two, the where Avram Avinu comes and he mourns over his wife Sarah. 
Rashi says, you know what, what was, why was the just, juxtaposition? Why is it that Akedas Yitzhak, the sacrifice of Yitzhak, was put close to the death of, of Sarah? And Rashi says, because the angel basically told, you know, Sarah that Isaac, Yitzhak, her, her son, was almost slaughtered. He was almost, almost slaughtered. The Sifse Chachamim explains. That explains as follows, uh, right? So, so the basic idea is as follows, is as follows before we get to the Sifzah uh, You know, Sarah was, you know, was waiting for a long time for a child. She didn't have a child for a long time. And then eventually she had a son, Isaac, Yitzchak. Yitzchak now was going to, to with Abraham, you know, her, her, his father, and they, he was going to be sacrificed. And the angel told his mother that your son was sacrificed and she was so shocked from this information that she died. Now, Yitzhak really was not, he was not killed. He was brought on the, on the altar, but he was never, he was never killed. So explains the Sif Sechachamim. When the angel came to describe to Sarah what happened, he should have told her, he should have told her, I have good news for you. Your son is fine. He was almost slaughtered, right? When, when my children's schools, uh, you know, they, they, they call me and I, I'm very greatly appreciative for it. The way that they say is like, oh, everything is fine, but I just wanted to tell you X, Y, and Z, whatever, whatever the information they wanted to present. So when a school calls to, to a parent, they'd be like, oh, everything's okay, but I just wanted to, that's how they start off the conversation, which is great. I think that's fantastic. So when the angel came over to Sarah, he should have started off with like, hey, I'm bringing you information on your son. Everything is okay, but I just wanted to let you know he was almost, you know, he was brought on the altar. He was almost slaughtered, but he's okay. He's alive and well. But the angel did not do that. The angel was basically said that your son was slaughtered, but he was not killed. But Sarah died before she heard the words that he wasn't. That's what, how the Sif Sechachamim explains it. And it explains Rabbi Yorucham Levavitz. That we could see the, the way that, the, 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 that even an angel can deliver news. They could spoil, even if it's good news, they could spoil the whole message and, and it could destroy worlds. This angel of good news became the angel of death. The lesson here that we have to learn is how careful we have to be with our words. So many times we speak, we mean no harm, but we wind up saying things that are very painful. And it could be just because of carelessness. And Rabbi Shalom Salantar used to say that the first mitzvah in the Torah is do not be a fool. Sometimes we're foolish. We don't think before we speak. And the lesson we learned from here, from this week's parsha, is be careful how you use these your words. Your words can have a tremendous amount of effect on the people. And we see that over here in the media. The media uses certain trigger words. They use the words occupation. They use the words Milton. They use the words terrorist. All these have different connotations. A trigger word has a power to evoke a certain emotion. If someone's reading the news coverage and they don't know anything about the news coverage and they hear the word Milton, they're like, okay, you know, that could be a good guy. That could be a bad guy. I don't know yet. Kind of up in the air. But if you hear the word terrorist, you know who's the bad guy. If you read the word occupation, you'd be like, okay, that's the bad guy. They're occupying somewhere, something that they shouldn't be. So when you take the facts and you misrepresent them, you're evoking a certain emotion on the people. And the left media, what they do is that they use these key words. They use key words that evoke a certain emotion to show people, oh yeah, you have to side with the wrong side because... It's occupied territory. They're just militants. They're just going and they're fighting for their cause. They make them look somehow like the good guy. That is the power of words. That is the power that you have the ability to go and take something and twist it that it could be the worst terrorist act and somehow you can make them a hero. And by the way, this is not only for news. This trigger words can go for anything. It could go for your relationships, for your, you know, between your spouses, between in, in marriage, in children, in, in business. There's so many things that if you don't use the right words, it can cause a catastrophic, you know, outcome. The, the way that Mark Twain, to quote him twice, said that the difference between the right word and the almost right word is the difference between lightning and a lightning bug. Very big difference. Huge, huge difference by just choosing, choosing the right, the right word. And we see this again and again in the news coverage. This week, there was a Jewish man by the name of Paul Kessler. He was hit in the head by a microphone in a pro-Palestinian rally for carrying Israeli flag and he later died from that, from that hit. That was what happened. 
Again, just to clarify what happened, there was a Jewish guy who was in a pro, with a pro-Palestinian person went and hit him and ended up killing him because of that. Though That's the factual things that happened. Look at how the news media covered it. NBC, and I'm quoting, man dies after hitting head during Israel and Palestinian rallies in California, officials say. Look at the terminology, man dies after hitting head? Like, after, he was hit by a pro-Palestinian, you should have written that a pro-Palestinian person hit him, and that's why he died. But no, because that's not good for the narrative. The narrative is that Palestinians, they have to be the, you know, they're coming up on the right side. So look at how they use their words. That's NBC, ABC. Elderly Jewish man dies after confrontation with pro-Palestinian protesters. Look at the word, confrontation. It's like, oh, it's a confrontation, both sides. There's one guy that murdered another guy. Again, maybe you want to say it was unintentional, very likely. But confrontation, that's the word that you use. Imagine if this would be used by by George Floyd. New York Times, Jewish man dies after altercation at dueling protest in California. (laughs) Altercation, is that what it was? Where one person hits another person and kills him. That's an altercation. And we could see the truth of the matter was a Jewish man was killed by a pro-Palestinian protester. Again, probably by accident, granted, but he was hit by a pro-Palestinian. Just see the news as it came out. Present the facts. They don't because they use. there's a certain narrative that the left media wants you to hear. And they use certain trigger words for that. They use words like genocide in Gaza. They use terms as open-ear prison, apartheid, militant. All these are factually incorrect. Factually incorrect means that they're not presenting the right, they're presenting their own biased opinion. And this affects every single one of us. We could see how much of a, the word can affect, it can evoke an emotion, and it can re- result in so much to the point that it could change, it could change outcomes of wars. Because these people eventually affect the media affects the whole population. The population in turn goes and rallies and protests for the government to go and act a certain way. And this all based of incorrect facts. This is the lesson number three that we have. We can see the damage of our words. We can see the damage that it can cause and how careful we have to be with our words. We, we know that the Jewish people, the power is in the mouth, the power is in tefillah. But if we don't use our mouth properly, if we use our words incorrectly, the power of our tefillah is reduced. Right now, we need tefillah more than ever. We have to make sure that we use our words properly to make sure that our tefillahs have the strongest possible outcome. In Bereshus chapter 23, verse 3, in this week's Pasha, after the the death of Sarah, his his wife, the Pasuk tells us, Vayakam Avram al Pnei and Avram arose from his dead. Now, this is a very interesting terminology that, uh, you know, that to use. But Yakum Avram rose. Well, what does that mean? It rose. So, the commentators explain, Min Hassani explains that the result of the Akedah could have been very, very detrimental for Avram Avinu emotionally and spiritually. Meaning that the Akedah, the, the, you know, the, the whole story with, uh, with Yitzhak and the sacrifice, that was the cause of Sarah's death. That could have came to the point where Avram would have been like, this is what I got rewarded with. Like, he could have been set back because of, of this situation. Like, this is the reward that I got. And this would have set him back spiritually big time. And this was a big test. This was a big test for Avram, how he was going to react. Of course, we know that Sarah died during her time. She died by the right time. But yet again, you see the, you see what happened. The way that the, the, the events played out is that Yitzchak was brought, being brought up as a carbon and Sarah was left her shortly right after hearing about it. So you can't, uh, you know, you start plugging, plugging in the dots. It looks very, very obvious. And Avram could, could start saying, okay, like maybe this wasn't worth it. Maybe I should have done this. I lost my wife. And he could go and he could start questioning what he would have, what he done. And he could have questioned his spirituality. But it says, Vayakam Avram. Avram got up. This was a test from Akadish Baruch Hu. How are you going to go and react from it? And Avram got up from that. Meaning that he arose from this experience. He got up from this test and he increased his spirituality from this test. He didn't lose spirituality from this test and we see this nowadays many 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 one every single one of us we're all hurting and we should be hurting what's going on in israel 
But what do we use that hurt? Do we use that for tefillah? Do we use that, or do we use that for just a negative way of depression and 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 sulking? There are so many ways that we could take it in a ne- take it in a negative way. And if you do take it in a negative way, Hamas wins. The Satan wins. We have to rise above it, just like Avram Avinu Vayakam Avram Avram got up. So do we need to rise above it. We got knocked down. We did, but we have to get back up. And how do we do that? Do we increase our davening or do we decrease our davening? Do we increase our learning or do we increase our chazid? And when you look around, Klal Yisrael is increasing tenfold. It's amazing. But do we keep that up? Are we keeping that up? Can we do more? We have to be like Avram Avinu in this week's parsha. By Yakum Avram, he went through a very difficult test and he got up. And he rose above it. We, every single Jew, every single one of us is are in a difficult test. Can we come to the point that we get up? And we are, we, we get above it. And that is lesson number four. Lesson number four is what do we do now? Do we rise up from this experience like Avram rose up from his test? Vayakam Avram. And for the final lesson, we see in Bereshus in this week's parsha, Bereshus chapter 24 verse 62. Yitzchak met Rivka. And Eliezer, when he was coming back from the well. Now, Rabbeinu Avram ben Arambam asks a question like, why is it says, Why does it say that he's coming back from the well? What's the difference? Coming, going, he was on the way to the well. He was whatever, he was traveling and he saw, he saw Rivka and Yitzhak and that's when he greeted them. And explains Rabbeinu Avram ben Arambam. That Yitzchak, what was he doing at the well? That's when he went for seclusion for privacy. That's when he went to go and daven. That's when he went to do his Avodah Hashem. He went over there and when he was going to do Avodah Hashem, he was laser focused. He knew what he needed to do and he didn't, there was no distractions. And explains Rabbi Avram ben Arambam that if Rivka and Eliezer would have been going and meeting and meeting Yitzchak on his way to his Avodah Hashem, on his way to his tefillah, Yitzchak would have not seen them because he was so focused on what he needed to do. He had an extreme focus. He had no distractions. And that's why he was only able to notice them because he was on his way back. He finishes up by the Hashem. Now he was able to notice them. Beforehand, he was completely focused. And this is the fifth lesson and the final lesson. We get very easily distracted nowadays. We're constantly looking at the news. We're constantly going. We're constantly distracted. You're davening. You're learning. Your your things. Your mind is elsewhere. And you know, okay, you have your brothers and sisters in Israel. Rightfully so, no? But the lesson we learn from Yitzhak. To be laser focused when you're doing a Vaitas Hashem, when you're doing anything in life and you want to be successful, you have to be focused. You have to be laser focused. So let's do a quick recap on the five lessons and then we'll do a plug-in and how they all connect to one another. The first lesson that we spoke about is being Yashar. Being straight, being intellectually honest. That's why I, the Torah does not speak about the story of Avraham Avinu because it wouldn't have been Yasha to only bring one side of the story. You have to bring both sides of the story. So the first lesson that we need to know is you need to be honest, intellectual honest, honest in business, honest in relationship. You have to be honest. That's lesson number one. Lesson number two is we show the ignorance of the world, the ignorance of the people that support Palestine, the pro-Palestinian cause, the pro-Hamas cause. Very, very ignorant. But then we learned that also every single one of us also has ignorance in our lives. And we have to look just like they, we want them to stop their ignorance. We also have to stop our ignorance. We have to add there's lessons in everything in life. And we have to stop for a second, spend five minutes after you hear this class. Stop and think about what you have in your life that you're ignorant on. And then you could go and maybe you could try to fix it. Lesson number three is we learn the damage of words, the trigger words, and how the media uses to manipulate people into thinking one side is right versus one side is wrong, even though it's factually incorrect. And that's what we have to be careful in our words. We know that we use our mouth for tefillah, for learning Torah. We use our mouth for good, but we have to be careful to make sure that we use our mouth positively because that is what's going to help us win the war. That's what's going to help us with everything, our powers in our tefillah. And if we want our tefillah to be successful, we have to make sure we use our words correctly. That's lesson number three. Lesson number four, as we have to know that we're in a test right now. Avram Avinu, this week's partial, was in a big test after his wife died. But what does it say? Vayakam Avram, Avram got up. So too we, we're in a test, we have to get up. We have to rise above it, and we have to get up on this test. And the final lesson, lesson number five, is these days it's very easy to get distracted. 
And this is a lesson that we have to learn is to when we want to do something, whether it's work, whether it's our Vedas Hashem, whether it's our relationships, whatever it is, we have to be laser focused. The more focused that you are, the more that you can accomplish. Now, let us pull this all together. This was not a five lessons at random. Each and every single one is interconnected, but they're not in order. So bear with me and we'll connect each one, but they're not in order. So we start off with lesson number two. And that is, this is not a, a class just about current events. It's not a class about news. It's, a le- it's about a class about how you're going to make yourself better and what you're going to do different about it moving forward. So lesson number two is find your ignorance. And that's how we start off with. We have to start off with finding what is it we could see that the world is lacking. The left media, the left liberal world is lacking in things. And we say, how could you be so ignorant? But we have to look internally. We have to look in the mirror and say, what are we ignorant on? What is something that we're lacking that we have to improve on? And that's that's what we have to focus first but then the question is how? How am I going to be able to go and focus what I'm ignorant on? And that is lesson number one that we mentioned, and that is being yashar, being straight, being honest. If you're honest with yourself, you could see how many areas you have that you're ignorant on, that you have to focus on, that you have to improve on, whether it's your relationship with your spouse, whether it's your relationship with Hashem, what's your avayda Hashem, what's your business, whatever it is, there's so many areas. The more that you look at it, the more that you're going to find. But you have to be honest. But once you find your ignorance... Then it's a test. It's difficult. You have to go above it. You have to go above it. And just like Avram Avinu Vayakam Avram, and this was lesson number four, that you have to go and rise above it and overcome it and pass this test. But then the question that you're going to ask, how? It's so difficult. It's so difficult to pass the test because obviously you're falling in on it. And the answer is, this is lesson number five, that if you focus on something, you'll be able to accomplish. But if you pass over it, then guess what? You're not going to be able to accomplish it. So the laser, the, the, the lesson number five, just like Eliezer was when he was going to Tefillah, he was laser focused. If we want to overcome our ignorance, if we want to overcome something that we have to improve ourselves, we have to be laser focused. And this is in conjunction with lesson number two that we have to daven because that's the power of the mouth. Once we are laser focused and we daven Takadish Baruch with help to overcome overcome this ignorance, then we would be able to go and overcome our issues and we'd be able to take our tefillahs and bring them to such a high level that we would be really be able to bring Mashiach Mehira Biyamenu. And with that, we'll, we'll finish off as we usually do with a capital Tehillim, capital Koflamit. Shir Hamalois, Mima Hamakim, Achenu kobeis Yisrael, hanesunim batzara uvashevya, ha'aindim ben bayam uven bayabasha, hamakam yidrachim alehem, v'yitziem mitzara lervacha, umeafela leayra, umeshibud legeula, hashta bagala bezman kerev v'namar amen. May we be able to see Mashiach b'mehera b'yamenu, and may Mashiach be the one to be able to complete and finish off this war. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.